0: I was debating whether to read Matthew 5 through 7. I remember last time my wife told me that the scripture portion I chose was far too long. So we opted for the shorter passage. That's okay. Though this sermon is about all three of those chapters Matthew 5 through 7. Um, and I don't know if you've ever had a conversation uh, with somebody who, you know, you're talking about sin. Um, maybe not their sin, but just sin in general, and then they've got their scripture memory verse ready for you. Judge not, that ye be not judged. Have you ever had a conversation like that? That's a really, um, probably one of the greatest memory verses for unsaved people. Uh, I've had conversations like that, and I remember one, uh, the girl I worked with back in Portland and I know for a fact that she was not a believer and had no interest in following Jesus but she had that verse memorized can you recite the Lord's Prayer from heart probably in the King James Version I bet you can except I'm not supposed to bet so I just I think you probably could or have you ever heard someone tell you that if you sin with your right hand you should cut it off or if your right hand causes you to sin yeah have you done it see both hands. Just kidding. What about the golden rule? So whatever you wish others would do to you, go ahead and do that to them. That's a paraphrase. But we have that memorized. Enter by the narrow gate. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. How about this? The wise man built his house upon the rock. Jeremy, can we sing that? No. See, even if we're newer Christians, we have these things memorized. We've heard them forever. They're part of our culture. They're part of the English language. And you know what? They all of them come from the Sermon on the Mount, which is recorded in Matthew 5 through 7. And If I had to guess, I'd say that the Sermon on the Mount is probably the most famous sermon in the world and the least understood sermon in the world. For example... In the early 20th century, theologians and Christians tried to apply the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount to address the social ills that they saw rising all around them in the century that led to World War I, World War II, and a number of other wars. They did this without any reference to Christ and the gospel, and thus was born the social justice gospel, which finds its hope not in a Messiah who saves from sin, but in alleviating poverty and doing good for those less fortunate. Now, I think the Lord would have us do good to those less fortunate, but never apart from the gospel. That's a foreign concept. Another example of a misunderstanding of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus was simply giving an exposition of the law. He was, in essence, leading people back to Sinai and declaring to them what Moses had declared to them a thousand or so years before. But the odd thing about that interpretation is that Jesus said that he came to seek and to save the lost. And it would be kind of an odd way to seek and save the lost by simply bringing them back to a mountain and a law with which they could never be saved to begin with. Jesus beautifully explains the law and what it's all about, but he doesn't merely leave us there, but he takes us where the law is meant to take us, which is to himself. So whatever the Sermon on the Mount is, it's not simply an exposition of Moses. Another popular misunderstanding of the Sermon on the Mount sees the impossibly high standards that are communicated to us in this sermon. As Rick summarized it earlier, be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. And it gets down into the nitty-gritty areas of our lives, and then in that light, having exposed our hearts, says, be perfect. So, many have seen in the sermon a standard that is so impossible that they don't attribute the sermon to us now, as far as application is concerned. But this is a a very old dispensational view that the sermon is filled with commands that will apply in the future kingdom when Messiah comes and sets up his reign on the earth. So we don't need to worry about it right now. The thing about that is that you lose so much of the sense of the sermon because if Christ is reigning on the earth and all is well, then who's slapping you on the right cheek so that you need to turn the left? Are you struggling with sin in that kingdom? No. So friends, the Sermon on the Mount definitely doesn't just apply to some future reign. So the Sermon on the Mount is the most famous and most misunderstood sermon. In the hands of unbelievers, it's a license to rebuke you if you suggest that there's such a thing as sin that people should be concerned about. In the hands of liberalism, it's a way to address social ills without offending anybody. In the hands of legalists, it's a bat to beat sinners with. And for some, it's practically useless for daily life. For the past eight and a half years, I've had the joy of serving here as what one precious girl has styled the backup pastor. (laughs) And part of being the backup pastor means that I get to preach a handful of times each year. And so today, starting today, I'm going to be devoting all of my sermons for however long into the future. Uh, it takes, as long as God gives me breath, um, to do a, ser- a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And that will occupy a lot of time. I figure that at just a handful of sermons each year, the Beatitudes alone is a couple years. So, there we go. But having looked at some of the most common misunderstandings of the Sermon on the Mount and figuring out some of what it's not, I'd like to spend today with a general overview to figure out exactly what is the nature of this sermon, so that we would understand something about its trajectory, that as we dive into it, verse by verse and bit by bit, we would get an understanding of what our Lord has said to us, because friends, this precious sermon is the heartbeat of the Christian life. And I would suggest to you that the key to unlocking the Sermon on the Mount is to focus intently on the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount. And so today, if you follow our outline, what we're going to be looking at is the promised preacher, the fulfilling preacher, the exemplary preacher, and the revealing preacher. And of course, the preacher of our sermon is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's dive right in and look at the promised preacher. How was Jesus, the promised one, who was expected by Israel, at least by those who who were concerned about what the Old Testament prophecy said, and how does he, in this sermon, show us that he is that person? Well, in order to see this, we have to understand the sermon in the context of the whole Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is a masterful storyteller. And his Gospel is entirely Jewish. There are over 40 direct quotations of the Old Testament in the Gospel of Matthew because Matthew's aim is to reach his fellow Jews for Christ and to show them that the Messiah, the long-expected consolation of Israel, is none other than Jesus. In fact, in Greek, the word Christ literally means Messiah. It's a Greek translation of that word. There are countless allusions to the Old Testament, and Matthew assumes that his readers are familiar with both the law and the prophecies, And his purpose in presenting Jesus as the long-expected Messiah is to show that he is the Savior not only of Jews, but remember how his gospel ends, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. He is showing that the Jewish Messiah is in fact the Messiah to Gentiles, that he is the Savior of the whole world and the King of the Jews. He is a King who is revealed, as we see from the very beginning of his life on earth. He is a King who is rejected by his own people, put to death on a cross, He is a king who is resurrected and brought back to life because sin could not keep him down because he paid the penalty for it. And he is a king who we see, especially in the discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, is who is returning. He is the king who is revealed, who is rejected, who is resurrected, and who is, make no mistake, returning. This is what Matthew is up to. And he arranges his gospel around a series of teaching blocks known as discourses, beginning with the Sermon on the Mount. And being a good Jew, some have seen that these five discourses around which the entire gospel story is woven mirror to some extent the five books of Moses. In fact, that was a very common Jewish way of writing to arrange things in groups of five because of how highly esteemed and revered the law of Moses is. And in the whole book of Matthew, and particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, what we see about Jesus is that he is the promised one. The preacher of this sermon is the promised son of David, who is the greater David, who is the king who is to rule. If you remember back to 2 Samuel 7, the Lord gave David a promise that on his throne would sit a ruler who would rule justly over his people of Israel. Beginning in Matthew chapter 1, we see this purpose that Jesus is shown as the greater David who was to come. He starts off, the very first words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So already he's primed his readers to see that this one is the one who would come and reign on the throne of David. And if you'd turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, just a few pages before the Sermon on the Mount... Look at what these Gentiles, these Persian wise men, came at Christmas time, not necessarily in December, but uh, look what they came to do. Beginning in verse 1 Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Jesus is the greater David, the king of the Jews. And God proclaimed it to Gentile philosophers in the east by putting a star in the sky that had not been there before. So that they could follow it and find this king. And in Matthew chapter 3. It begins in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. What did he preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is this idea of the kingdom of heaven if it's not the rule of the greater David over his people? Wherever the rule of Jesus is, there the kingdom of heaven is. His rule is spreading. It began, it was declared by John the Baptist. And this is a major theme for Matthew. Matthew that his people would see that the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of Jesus. And then we get to our sermon. Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. Look what Jesus said. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Going down to verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. Over in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, how important is the kingdom? Well, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray kingdom prayers. And so he says, Pray like this Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And finally, just to show that this goes through the whole sermon, in verse 21 of chapter 7, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus, the greater David, is concerned in this sermon with giving a charter for the kingdom of heaven. He is declaring to those who are listening to him, specifically to his disciples, those who would follow him, that they are to be kingdom citizens, and that kingdom citizens live like this. And he goes on to show them what the kingdom looks like in their daily lives. It's the Sermon on the Mount. The, the inaugural address of the king of the Jews, the greater David who was to come. Now this is all not new. This was all very much expected. In fact, back in the, uh, the book of Deuteronomy, Moses was talking about what would happen when kings started to reign in Israel. In Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 15, there's this, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And then in verse 18 and 19, it says, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. Now, remember your old Testament history What is it that got the people of Israel into trouble time and time and time again, ultimately leading to a captivity in Assyria, to a captivity in Babylon, in a scattering through the whole world? Was it not a chronicle of king after king after king that failed to obey and honor the law of God because their hearts were not set on God? And so they failed miserably in this call for the king to be the chief obedient worshiper of God, leading his people in righteousness. Enter the greater David, the king of the Jews, not a foreigner, but one from among their own people, just as it says. And what would we find him doing? But obeying the law of God perfectly, doing exactly what the king is supposed to do leading as chief worshiper and lover of God. The king called to live a righteous life and show his people what it means to belong to God. Jesus is the greater David. But that's not the only thing that Matthew's up to. Not only in the whole gospel, but particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, David is showing that not only is Jesus the promised preacher who is the greater David, but he is the promised preacher who is the greater Moses. He is the new Moses. And Matthew never explicitly says this, but he does make it very clear by what he does, as parallel after parallel after parallel exists in the life of Jesus between him and David. Or, I'm sorry, him and Moses. Jesus, like Moses, were shown, was spared as an infant when a ruler was trying to destroy him. He, like Moses, went down to Egypt And also came up out of Egypt, Matthew chapter 2. He, like Moses, went through the waters. Moses through the Red Sea. Jesus through the waters of baptism. Jesus, like Moses, wandered in the wilderness for 40. It was 40 years for Moses and the people of Israel. It was 40 days for Jesus. And he, like Moses, and this is important. Look at Matthew 5, 1, please. He went up on the mountain. Even in how the Sermon on the Mount is framed... Matthew is showing, this is the guy. This is the greater Moses. Our book of Matthew is written in Greek. okay? And this Greek phrase, up on the mountain, is found three times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is known as the Septuagint, abbreviated by LXX, Roman numeral for 70, because tradition had it that it was translated by 70 men. And all three of those instances of the Greek phrase, up on the mountain refer to Moses going up on Sinai to receive the law from God. And here we have the greater Moses going up on the mountain, hearkening back to that image of Moses. He, like Moses, appointed 12 men to serve with him, which is exactly what Moses did in Numbers chapter 1 to serve as leaders of the tribes of Israel. And on and on it goes all throughout the whole gospel. And the book is structured, like I said, around these five teachings, which in and of itself points back to what God gave to Moses. Jesus is the promised one who would be the greater Moses, the prophet who was to come. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, this is exactly what Moses said needed to happen. He said, the Lord your God will raise up For you, a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. And here he comes. Will we listen? The Sermon on the Mount is the first teaching of the greater Moses. The greater than Moses who was to come to Israel... He's the promised teacher who goes up on the mountain and sits down the way that Jewish tradition holds that Moses sat down when he received the law. Only this time, he doesn't simply restate the law, but shows them the heart of the law. And I would argue he does that by showing them himself. A summary of the law's requirements has already been referenced twice this morning, but it's worth worth stating again. In Matthew 5, 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This has always been the requirement of the law. God has always required perfection because he himself is perfect. And that's always been what the law has been about. It's been about showing the character and the holiness of God and what impact that has on the people that God would call his own. And all along, because his perfection cannot it cannot be violated. His holiness cannot be smeared. His, his justice cannot be just set off to the side when the law is broken. That's why, as Jesus' half-brother James put it, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Hmm. That is a really high standard. And especially for those who are type A, that's the brink of despair. And what's even more maddening is that it's true. It's true. So do you see why those who have tried to find favor with God through the good things they do have always missed the mark by a long shot? We know from Paul's pen exactly what that means. The wages of sin, he says, is death. But thanks be to God, Jesus came. As the rest of the verse says, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He is our Lord who is the greater David reigning over his people. He's the greatest, he's the greater Moses who preached the gospel of how sinners who are condemned by the law of Moses could be saved from their sins and given new life in God. And so the Sermon on the Mount we see that Jesus was not only the promised preacher who would come, but he's also the fulfilling preacher who did what no one else could. He was the preacher who not only explained God's holiness, but lived God's holiness in a way that no one else ever would. And therefore, he was the perfect standard, the perfect substitute, the perfect savior, who Emmanuel is God with us. He is the fulfilling preacher. Look down with me, if you would, at verses 17 and 18 of chapter 5. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, and until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So this challenges the misunderstanding that... Any aspect of the Old Testament is irrelevant for our lives today. This completely undermines the view that we can get rid of that Old Testament. As one prominent American preacher recently published in a book, the Old Testament is, is, is irrelevant to us. It's useless. We have no business with that. We're Christians. Jesus says no. No, that Old Testament, that's inspired. It's inerrant. It's inerrant. It is infallible. It is God's word. It will never pass away till all of it is accomplished. It is entirely relevant. The question is, how? Well, when Jesus comes, the game changes. He says, I have not come to abolish that, but I have come to fulfill it. I've come to bring it to its purpose, to complete it, to do what nothing, no one else ever could do. And there are three ways in particular that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. At least three. I'm just going to mention three here today. First, he fulfilled the types. What we mean by that is the things in the law that pointed forward to a greater reality. The way that um, the author of Hebrews, kind of, he called it a shadow. Uh, if you think about a shadow... Um, if you, okay, so look on that wall, okay? And all along the top of that wall there, you see a shadow. And where's that shadow coming from? It's coming from the overhang. And if all you saw was that shadow, what would that tell you? Well, it tell you that there's something above it that the light is hitting, and that's what's casting the shadow. The shadow is an indication of the overhang. That's probably a poor illustration, but you get the point. In the same way, the sacrifices, the food laws, the feasts, all those requirements about clothing and mixed fabrics and things that the Jews could and couldn't do, what were they about? Well, they were types pointing forward to what's called the anti-type. They were a shadow pointing forward to the substance, and in fact, that's exactly what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The substance belongs to Christ. It was all about Jesus the whole time. And so, interestingly, just enough, uh, in Colossians 2, this really gets at the question of are Christians required to keep the Sabbath? whether on Sunday as the Christian Sabbath or on Saturday, the answer is no. This is a shadow. Christ came, and he fulfilled those types. And now that we have the substance, now that we have Jesus, we don't need to go back and observe the things that pointed forward to him. He fulfilled the types. The types aren't irrelevant. They're not done away with in the sense of God has wiped them away from his word, but Jesus changes our relationship to them. Does that make sense? It's an important point. Another way that he fulfilled the law and the prophets is that he kept the law that no one could keep. Remember what we saw about the law. If you don't keep all of it, you are condemned by all of it because it comes as a unity. But Jesus does what no one else could do, and so the apostle Peter is able to write to Jews scattered under the persecution of probably the emperor Nero in 1 Peter, and he says about Jesus, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. It doesn't matter which of the Ten Commandments you ask about, Jesus kept them all. It doesn't matter what part of the law you pull out. Ooh, Leviticus 17, let's check that one out. Now, he did it. Jesus fulfilled the law by doing what no one ever could do and he flawlessly lived before God as the perfect righteous one. And having done that, he alone was qualified to fulfill the law's judgment. Because the law requires judgment, make no mistake. God's holy standard has always required that those who do not meet it be condemned to this very day. In Jesus, in that same passage, Peter goes on to explain himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, by his wounds. See, the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Jesus at a crucial transition point in human history. The last prophet in the Old Testament sense, John John the Baptist, just before the Sermon on the Mount was preached, had been arrested. His ministry had been ended by the rulers of that day. And Jewish religion sought righteousness through a law that couldn't be kept, which was why the Pharisees were such legalists, because that's what they taught the people. And here comes John the Baptist the last of the Old Testament prophets, who announces that Jesus is the Lamb of God who would actually take away the sin of the world. It wasn't through Pharisaic religion. It wasn't through legalism. It wasn't through self-righteousness. No, it's through this guy, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So at long last, sinners could truly be cleansed. At long last, the Messiah had come to announce his kingdom. The new Moses had arrived not to give again the law, but to fulfill the law and give grace to sinners who were crushed under the law's requirements. And this is how John, the apostle, begins his gospel. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is shown to be the promised preacher, who would lead his people on the true exodus that the first exodus pointed forward to. And as the sermon unfolds through chapters 5 and 6, Jesus is shown also to be the exemplary preacher whose holiness and righteous character are shown to be the model for the lives of those who would follow after him, who are redeemed. And in this sense, Jesus is the exemplary preacher because everything he says in the Sermon on the Mount He did. He did. And aren't you glad about that? Because, friends, our salvation depends on it. It's very easy to see the sermon as a list of do's and don'ts and to miss Jesus entirely. Remember, this has been one of the major points of misunderstanding this sermon throughout the history of its interpretation, especially in the 20th century. Liberalism came along and took these amazing words that point to Jesus and our need for him and completely stripped them of all their power by saying, "Hey, we don't need to hinder people with talk of sin, let's just love them the way that Jesus said. Friends, God is love, but abomination is the idea that love exists apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can't think of a more loveless way to come alongside somebody. We have to understand the sermon as more than this. But you can I understand the temptation, right? What must I do for my life to improve? Well, I need to I need to not be so angry. And so I'm going to look at Jesus, I'm going to meditate on his words. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment because if I just think about that and remember that, I can be less angry. Or I need to have more integrity in my speech. And so I'm going to look at, at this thing on oaths in Matthew 5 and say, let your simply, let your, let you... Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. I'm sure that was made into a plaque somewhere and put on some kid's bedroom wall by mom. It's easy to do. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, Jesus says. You've heard it said, but I say love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay, I could do that. But how easy would it be to do that and miss Jesus? Many people have tried to apply the Sermon on the Mount to society and say this would make for really good government. And you know what? Yeah, it would. I'm sure it would. The problem is, have you seen Congress? (laughs) Have you seen who's voting? Have you looked in the mirror? (laughs) Friends, no society can do this because what Jesus shows us is that in order to do this, Something radical has to happen to us from the outside. We can't conjure it up from the inside. We're not that good. In fact, Jesus says, unless you're perfect, you're not good at all. And so whatever this is, we better not just try to apply it to government, because that's not what it's for. So what should our relationship be to the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, remember, the key is to look at the preacher. He is the exemplar. This sermon, when we understand it, when we go back to it, when we see exactly what Jesus is saying, what else are you going to look at that's going to bring you to your knees and bring you back to the throne of grace every single day? Jesus shows that when he came, the law didn't go away. The call to holiness is still there. Right here in this sermon, he completely undercuts this, uh, this debate of uh, lordship salvation. It's especially raged about 30 years ago. Can a person be a Christian and have Jesus as savior, but not have him as lord and follow after him and become like him? And the question is answered by Jesus in this sermon. No, there's no such thing as having Jesus as savior unless you also have him as lord. He becomes the ruler. He is the greater David, and that actually means something for the lives of his people. But we better get the order right, because no one can do this, and anyone who tries without first having come to the one who kept it, and finding in him and him alone their hope of salvation, is in for a, a a bit of a bumpy ride. This sermon, we have to understand the order, first comes salvation, then comes the sermon. First comes the Savior, then comes sanctification. If we try to be like Jesus before trusting only in Jesus and returning back to the gospel day by day by day, then we just need to worry. just, Just sign up for counseling. Because you will drive yourself nuts. And you will be in despair. And you rightly would be. We have to understand that the ethics of this sermon are gospel ethics cannot be, never were meant to be lived by anybody who doesn't know Jesus, whose sins have been washed away, who have been robed in his righteousness. Please understand this. Luke 6 is a record by Luke of the very same sermon. He arranges the material differently. He doesn't include a lot of the stuff that Matthew does because each writer is writing their gospel with their own particular purpose in mind. Yet, nevertheless, same sermon. And in the middle of that sermon, Jesus shows us what this sermon is supposed to be like in our lives when he says that a disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Do you see? First, we have Jesus as teacher. Then we grow to become like our teacher first salvation then sanctification. And here in the sermon Jesus is the master teacher who teaches his redeemed people how to be like him. It is our training manual for the Christian life. It's not a manual about how to be saved but how to live as saved people. That's the whole thing that's going on here. It's not about keeping the law for righteousness but manifesting Christ's righteousness through Christ likeness. And that's why Jesus is the promised preacher Who reveals God to us, the fulfilling preacher who makes life with God possible by keeping the law for us. He's the exemplary preacher who shows his people what it looks like to be his people. And if I had to summarize the main message of all three chapters down to one short sentence so that we could remember it, it would go like this What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that those who are saved look like their Savior. Those who are saved look like their Savior. As we embark on our exploration of the Sermon on the Mount, I want to mention just one more use of this sermon for us. The sermon is very revealing; it is very revealing, and I want to talk about what this sermon reveals about us by actually going through the outline of the sermon, so that we keep in mind how it's unfolding and what's going on in each major block. Okay? And here we have our revealing preacher our preacher who reveals things about us. First, Matthew 5, verses 3 through 16. First, we see that Christ is the preacher who reveals our desperate need for the new birth. When's the last time you read... Well, okay, I know when you read the Beatitudes because Jesse read them to us. So remember those, okay, just 40 minutes ago. Um, who in the world can be the Beatitudes? That, this isn't describing... What someone does, this is describing who someone is. Now, I've been a Christian for a long time, and I look at that and I go, whoa, <laughs> what is going on here? And I know that if I've been a Christian for a long time and been serious about my faith and these are just piercing, this, there's no way that we can just be these things apart from Jesus. No, right from the very start, he's saying how much we need him. Unless we have the new birth, unless the Holy Spirit has come and given us life where before there was spiritual death, unless God has done that work, don't read further because we'll completely mess up the order and there's nothing that Satan would like more than for us to mess up the order and try to earn our salvation. And so the first thing we see is our desperate need for the new birth. And so the Beatitudes, they describe the gospel character of citizens of the kingdom. Because remember, Jesus is the greater David. This is his kingdom manifesto. And how do his citizens, what are they? They are Beatitude people. And then, what is the role of citizens of the kingdom? As they're living out kingdom life in a sinful world. Well, Jesus says to them, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. In verses 13 through 16. And so... We revealed our desperate need for the new birth, which raises a question: Am I born again? Do I know that God's life is within me? Has my whole hope been put in Jesus? Because unless it has, unless the new birth has come up upon me, I shouldn't try to apply this sermon. But, having assumed the new birth, In verses 13 through 16, we come to the next major section in Matthew 5, 17 through 48, where we see that Christ is the preacher who reveals that kingdom citizens love their neighbors as themselves. Remember, Jesus fulfilled the law, and now his people live it out to their neighbors. This whole love your neighbor as yourself thing didn't come up in the New Testament. No, that was Leviticus. God's holiness expressed in neighbor love is kingdom ethics. God's holiness expressed in neighbor love is kingdom ethics. And so he talks about anger and murder and what our hearts should be toward our brothers and sisters. He talks about lust, and he gets right to the heart with the issue of adultery. He talks about marriage and its sanctity. He talks about integrity of our speech. He talks about what to do when you're wronged by somebody else. And he talks about loving your enemies. I was griping about somebody to my wife last night, and then I stopped, and I'm like, oh, I've got to preach on the Sermon on the Mount tomorrow. This person's not even my enemy, and if I'm supposed to love my enemy, I've got to love this person. You see, Jesus, he shows us what neighbor love looks like. And then in chapter 6, the whole of chapter 6, Christ is shown to be the preacher revealing that life in God's kingdom is life in God's presence. How often do we try to go about doing Christian things without actually spending time with Christ? But this whole chapter in the Sermon on the Mount shows us that, no, the Christian life must be lived in the presence of God. It's what the Reformers referred to by the Latin phrase Coram Deo, life before the face of God. And so we see Jesus talking about how to go about doing acts of mercy with God, how to pray and spend time with God, the proper use of fasting, the proper use of money and what it looks like to trust God in a world where scary things happen. Christ is the preacher who reveals that kingdom life is life with God's presence. And then finally, in chapter 7, we see Christ as the preacher who reveals that saving faith is obedient faith. Saving faith is obedient faith. That very sobering passage that we've heard, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, that pretty well sums it up. Jesus is showing that the Christian life is a life of obedient faith. Having trusted in Jesus, we seek to live like Jesus with the help of the Holy Spirit in God's presence and he brings it all together with that great call to enter the narrow gate trusting Jesus alone and taking seriously his call to walk with him as his people in the world. In James 1:18 just a couple weeks ago or a few weeks ago Pastor John preached to us about this idea of first fruits. Remember that verse of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Do you remember what that concept of first fruits was all about? First fruits of what? Well, Jesus is coming back. And when he comes, he's changing everything. He's setting up his kingdom on the earth, and there's gonna be a new heavens and a new earth and a new people living out new life, not encumbered by sin, showing exactly what Christ's character looks like in the world. First fruits is the first taste of that life. And it doesn't start when Jesus comes back. It starts now with every redeemed person living in the presence of God and becoming more and more and more like him as our sinful tendencies are whittled away, as the Holy Spirit does miraculous work that's so subtle we oftentimes miss it. Which is why, by the way, it's so important that we be calling out to one another these evidences of the grace of God. Because we we miss it in ourselves, but we can see it in others. So say it. It'll be very encouraging, I promise. If you want to know what it means to live as a first fruit, read the Sermon on the Mount, because that's what it looks like. So there we have it. The Sermon on the Mount. Three chapters, one sermon. Verse by verse from now on. (laughs) The most famous sermon, the most misunderstood sermon. And by God's grace as we consider it, we'll remember that only by abiding in Christ and living in his presence will we understand its true meaning, So I commend it to you over the next days, weeks, months, years, read it slowly, meditate on it bit by bit, meet God there, see Jesus there. And if you cannot say, friend, if you cannot say with assurance that you are one of the kingdom citizens who has been given the new birth, then do business with God, plead with him, put your hope in him because that's the whole message. And then as we live this out, friends, as Sun Valley Church lives out the Sermon on the Mount by God's grace, because remember, we're meant to, Yakima will know who Jesus is and he will be more glorified and people living in darkness will come to light. Would you pray for that with me? Let's pray right now. Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. We worship you and adore you for the holy God that you are. And we know from your scriptures that we cannot compare with your holiness, not even close. We have none of our own. We thank you for revealing our only hope. Jesus, the new David, our King. Jesus, the new Moses, who would come to teach your people and to lead us In the exodus from sin into salvation, we praise you that you are the God of salvation. We pray that as surely as you have saved us, you would sanctify us and make us more like our Savior. Grant us the strength to face our sin by your help and in your presence to make war against it as we love our neighbors as ourselves as we love you and seek you and grow in prayer and intimacy with you. Help us to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven in Yakima. And we pray that as we do, that you would draw sinners to their Savior and show Yakima the only hope that it has. Father, we commit this prayer to you, knowing that it is your will, believing you to do it, and thanking you for it. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen.